I'm joined today by Sam Gregg. Sam is a distinguished fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and is the author of 16 books. Thank you for joining me, Sam. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. It's good to be with you. Now, your, your latest book is about the American economy. Um, it is um, the, uh, it's the next American economy. It talks about the history of the United States economy, why the United States economy has been so phenomenally successful. And then it starts to talk about the future, what it needs, what needs to happen to ensure that America continues to flourish. Um, if I could start with a, a fairly um, obvious question, you know, the United States has been a phenomenally successful economic success story. It started as a sort of small agrarian republic. It became, by the late 19th century, the uh, number one industrial economy in the world. And really, for much of the 20th century, it has done phenomenally well. It's been incredibly innovative, you know, from the age of powered flight to the smartphone. It's American inventors and innovation that have led the way. It's America that has been the sort of the seat of the uh, digital revolution. Why is this? What is it about America? I mean, the laws of physics aren't different here. Um, wh why is it that America is so phenomenally successful compared to other parts of the planet? Well, Douglas, I think that's the question which lots of people have thought about, and I spent some time in my book uh, discussing this. I think it's it's crucial, of course. So I think there's many different explanations. I mean, people will look to things like uh, the particular institutional arrangements of the United States. They will look to things like uh, the economic culture of the United States and the type of, let's call them, values that Americans bring to the economy. And you have there's lots of interesting research that's been done showing, for example, that um, it really does matter whether a people value things like liberty over equality. Uh, people um, who have done excellent research on this subject show, for example, that uh, economic liberty is highly valued in America and not so valued in most of the European Union. Well, those, that sort of value commitment has significant consequences for how, how people think about economic life, because if you value liberty over equality, and by equality, I don't mean equality before the law, I mean equal outcomes, then that's bound to have an effect upon how people think economically and act economically. So I think there's a cultural dimension to this, and that goes back, of course, right to the American founding, because liberty was clearly central to the whole American Revolution and the way that the U.S. Constitution was subsequently set up. So there's cultural factors, there's historical factors, <clears throat> and I think there's also obviously questions of incentives playing a very big role, and for much of its history, there's been very strong incentives for Americans to be entrepreneurial creative, to start businesses, People like Alexis de Tocqueville, when they came to the United States in the 1830s, noticed this straight away, that Americans just had very different attitudes towards these types of things, and that the institutional structure and culture was such that it reinforced those types of instincts. So that's that's the good, the good part of the story. What's, of course, remarkable is the fact that despite that America has, in many respects, drifted in what you might call a certain social democratic direction as a consequence of things like <clears throat> the New Deal 
or the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, or the whole progressive movement of the uh, late 19th century and early 20th century, which of course uh, took its inspiration from the German administrative state. What's remarkable is that economic culture in America remains such that despite those obstacles, America continues to be the number one country in the world, certainly for things like entrepreneurship. Now, that's not to say that the American economy is perfect. It has some significant challenges. And we also know that there are plenty of people on the left, and now, unfortunately, some people on the right, who don't have confidence in that particular American way of living economically, who want to move the United States much more in the direction of big government and bureaucracy and an administrative state preempting decisions for us and gradually essentially nullifying our liberty, especially our economic liberty. So while America continues to do very well, certainly compared to other countries, there are some grave challenges at home when it comes to preserving economic liberty. And that's one of the things my book tried to alert people to. I've I've often thought as a Brit coming to America that if you know Bill Gates, for example, had the misfortune to be born in London, he probably would have become a, a corporate banker. You know, if Steve Jobs had been born in Belgium or France, he'd probably be working for the local government. But it, there's something about the United States that brings out these incredibly entrepreneurial individuals and entrepreneurial opportunity that simply doesn't seem to exist anywhere else. But I mean, Americans live incredibly well. The the um, you know the average income in the United States. I mean, average blue collar income in the United States is you know vastly higher than than that in you know Western Europe or or, or, or many other countries. Um, you're saying that a lot of this is because of this relatively low tax, relatively small government approach to running the American economy since the Second World War. Are, are we seeing the kind of what you might call the, the Europeanization of the American economy under the current administration? Are we seeing, I mean, you, you certainly hear progressives in America looking at what happens in Europe and saying that America needs to be more like Europe. Um, you're, you're, you're saying that this Europeanization, if you like, would be a, a, a disaster for America. Yes, and uh, like you, I was born outside uh, the United States and lived outside and grew up outside the United States. My sense where people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs would have ended up uh, is pretty much the same as yours if they'd been born outside the United States. And I think that's because the incentives lie in many of those political structures for people to gravitate towards the state, including people who are very entrepreneurial, and they 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 start using their entrepreneurial powers, so to speak, not so much for good, but they become very good at getting things like subsidies and privileges, and very good at extracting these things from uh, the government. And but I do think that there are plenty of people, both on the right in the United States right now, who have essentially lost confidence and lost confidence a while ago especially in the case of progressives, in the basic settings established in place by the American founding and carried all the way through, despite some considerable ups and over the subsequent uh, almost three centuries. So those things are very much in play now. And there are plenty of people on the left and the right 
who would like to see the United States become much more like the European Union. Uh, and you can see this in particular states. You can see this in places like New York. I think you can see this in places like California. You can see this um, even with some Republican legislators, including American Republican senators, who have basically said that they want things like European-style corporatism. They want things like big unions involved in things like the setting of wages and conditions. And now there's always been some of those tendencies in the United States. But what's remarkable about the, the moment we're living through now is just how robust some of those forces have become, how strong they are on both sides of politics. And it's one of the reasons I wrote this book was to say, look, these things might be attractive from the outside, but let me that as someone who has a sense of what these things are like from the inside, you do not want to go down this particular path. But I think that ultimately involves Americans really rediscovering the genius of the American experiment in liberty and understanding just how unique that is and how important its consequences have been for things like economic growth. I mean, as you said, Americans have a much higher standard of living than, for example, most people living in most Western European countries, even relatively poor states in the United States. People live, working class people live at a much higher living standard compared to their their um, their equivalents in many European countries. So the, the point, of course, is that the, the seduction of power and the conviction that you, just by pulling some levers using government power that you can engineer particular outcomes is something that never really goes away. And we've seen this resurgence on the left and the right in the United States in this sense that government is not the engine of last resort. It is really the engine of first resort for dealing with what some people see as some significant social, cultural, and economic problems in the United States today. Now, no one would deny, I think, that there are social and cultural problems in America today. The question as to whether uh, something like a tariff or a, 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 a yet another welfare state program would fix any of those problems, I think, is very much in question. But that's the sort of arguments that we're running into today, to today, both from the left and the right. There's this conviction that if you just pull a few economic levers, these social problems will go away. And one of the things I argue in my book is that actually, no. I, I was somewhat depressed when, um, you know, Republicans, some of whom I knew quite well and assumed to be free marketeers, cheered when Donald Trump introduced various tariffs. Um, it, it, it proved to me that the belief in the free market and in free trade is is really quite shallow in, in, mm -hmm. in politics. Um, your, your book doesn't just identify the way in which some of these ideas, these anti-market ideas have crept back from the margins into the mainstream. It goes on to talk about some of the things that, that need to be done. Um, could, could you elaborate a little bit? I mean, take, for example, protectionism. Explain mm -hmm. what, why doesn't protectionism work? You know, here we are in the United States, one of the biggest economies in the world, a continental economy. Why, why can't the United States basically erect massive tariffs? How, 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 how is that going to be a bad thing for America? Well, the first thing, of course, to note is that the argument about tariffs 
has been in the United States right from the beginning of <laughs> the Republic. In fact, the um, the Constitutional Convention, the, the pretext for calling the Constitutional Convention in the 1780s was an argument about tariffs. And the, 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 the view that Americans should really take of the outside world. And there have always been Americans who have said, look, we're a big country. We don't really need to pay too much attention to the rest of the world. We can essentially live in a type of splendid isolation from the rest of the world because we can just trade with each other. Well, there's several problems with that argument. One, of course, is that <clears throat> protectionism is never about the national interest. It's never about the national interest. Economic nationalists typically present it that way, right? That hence the phrase economic nationalism. They're always the ones who are wrapping themselves in the in the flag. And people like um, you and I, who are free traders, we're, read, we're viewed as these sort of weird cosmopolitan people who, who apparently don't care very much about the United States or where, whichever country we live in. But of course, the reality is that protectionism is always about special interests. Behind every tariff, behind every subsidy, there's a particular special interest that's looking for a privilege. They're looking for something that gives them some type of political edge over domestic competitors and certainly over foreign competitors. And that produces, in the long term, significant problems of what we call cronyism, whereby you have more and more people drifting in the direction of becoming political and economic extractors of wealth rather than creators of wealth. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that protectionism encourages the illusion, the illusion that somehow there aren't people out there in the rest of the world who aren't prepared to somehow work harder or be more innovative or be more creative. Protectionism encourages the illusion that American American Americans can somehow remain immune from things like that. Now, of course, we know that that's not true. We've seen that in the cases of those industries in the United States, like the automobile industry in the 1970s and 1980s, that tried to effectively ward off competition from countries like Japan through subsidies and tariffs and all these things. And guess what? It didn't work. It simply encouraged more inefficiencies, more laziness, more looking to the state to protect them rather than making the hard decisions to be more entrepreneurial, more competitive, more flexible, and more adaptable. And protectionism, of course, encourages all those very negative tendencies. Another thing protectionism does, of course, is it produces massive misallocations of resources because it's no longer the case in conditions of a protected economy that people are seeking out opportunity, that people are using their liberties to um, develop new initiatives, to be more creative economically, et cetera. Instead, there's much more emphasis upon the state organizing and deciding what goes where when it comes to resources. So whether it's tariffs or something like industrial policy, whereby they, there's a sense that you directly use government intervention into particular segments of the economy to try and start or innovate certain different things, those things tend not to work. We know this. Industrial policy, which is very much part of the whole protectionist regime, produces massive misallocations of, of resources, encourages extensive 
cronyism and encourages more and more people to shift their entrepreneurial focus away from consumers and move it much more in the direction of how do I get a subsidy? How do I get a favor? How do I get a privilege? So while it seems that in some senses, because the United States has a big economy, because there's so many people, so many entrepreneurial people, that somehow it could exist in splendid isolation from the rest of the world, the rest of the world is not going away. Lots of people in the rest of the world are willing to work very hard, to be innovative, and to essentially capitalize on their comparative advantage. Protectionism encourages us to do all the opposite things and to move in the opposite direction. So over time, the economy becomes less efficient. Entrepreneurs are much more in the political sphere rather than in the economic sphere. And the government assumes a bigger and bigger role in the economy. So that's a long-term thing. That's a long-term process. And you can see that those countries that have embraced protectionist models for long periods of time, they end up having significant economic difficulties. It might take two, three, maybe four decades for it to happen. But when it happens, it's a disaster for the country. And then getting the country out of that mindset, getting it out of a protectionist mindset, is very, very difficult. Because once people have become effectively habituated to this protectionist economic nationalist mindset, getting them to change their minds is very hard. Perhaps one of the best ways of illustrating this point is to look at the history of the American automobile industry. You know, in the 1970s, there was this tremendous fear that, you know, an, an Asian competitor, Japan, was going to flood America with cheap cars. I mean, ask yourself a basic question. Is the American automobile better today than it was in the 1970s or worse? It's by almost any measure vastly better. Why? Because the competition from Japan, far from being kept out, was allowed to come in. It forced American car companies to up their game. I'm talking to you 10 miles away from a massive Nissan factory here in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. It employs thousands of Mississippians who love the job. It provides lots of people in Mississippi with affordable cars. Um, no one that I've ever met in Mississippi ever says, ah, oh, Nissan's a bad thing because they're owned by Japan. On the contrary, they 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 buy off American suppliers and create fantastic cars here in Mississippi. And all the while, the American car industry has actually created an entirely new type of automobile, the kind of Tesla type model. So that tells you <laughs> why if you actually don't protect and don't have tariffs and allow innovation to happen, actually everyone's a winner. Um, yes, and I think also if you look at the case of Japan, remember Japan, employed extensive industrial policy in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. And they only really abandoned it in the early 2000s. And the reason they abandoned it is because they came to the realization that it didn't work. And those parts of the economy that remained, that had remained relatively exposed to international competition had been the ones that had prospered. So it sort of goes to prove your point. When you're exposed to these competitive pressures from abroad, which free trade does, you work harder, you become more entrepreneurial, you think more carefully about how you allocate resources. Protectionism encourages you to do exactly the opposite thing, and you end up with places like Detroit. Now, your book also has a chapter on industrial policy, explaining why industrial mm -hmm. policy is wrong. Now, there's a real temptation on, on, on the part of both American politicians, but also politicians in other parts of what we, we call the West, 
to embrace an industrial policy. And one of the pretexts are this time it's different. We, we've got to have an industrial policy to deal with China or to deal with strategic threats. I mean, I, I'm very struck by the enormous amount of American wealth being spent by the federal government on encouraging people in America to start creating new microchips. Um, mm -hmm. you know, wh why is this a bad idea? And are we about to see a glut of um, microchips that no one actually wants to buy? Why is an industrial policy a bad idea? Wh wh why isn't it the answer to dealing with China? Well, of course, um, well, that, that's, that's so much that could be said about this. So the first thing to say is that um, <clears throat> in relation to the, the chips issue that you specifically mentioned, if you look at the, the CHIPS Act, which was passed by um, the Biden administration and Congress, I think about 10% of that bill actually had anything to do with microchips. The rest of it was basically subsidies and favors for things that had nothing to do with microchips. So that's the first thing. That's a very good example of how industrial policy inevitably gets captured by special interests that have their own concerns that have nothing to do with the, with the extensive end of the legislation. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing which I think is important to keep in mind is that those countries that have deployed industrial policy on a massive scale, whether it was Japan, as we just talked about, or uh, uh, countries like France in the European Union, or China, for that matter, which has deployed industrial policy on a massive scale, the track record for these is miserable. I mean, it's really very hard to find examples of successful industrial policy. Now, if you throw enough money into a particular segment of the economy, you're bound to get something. But of course, the huge opportunity costs that are consumed by that process, I think make it make such, such um, investments a forlorn exercise. Uh, the other thing I think, which is to bring it back to chips, uh, to give you a very good example, is that there were companies in America in the early 2010s that were looking at things like, okay, the strategic situation between America and China is starting to change. Um, China is clearly not behaving like we thought it would. Um, this is going to create some significant challenges for the United States when it comes to certain forms of technology like microchips, et cetera. What's fascinating about this is that there was no there were no government subsidies in the United States for these things. There were no there was no particular industrial policy for these things. But these private companies, simply looking at the geopolitical situation, realized they had an opportunity. That they, and they started opening up, building and opening up uh, microchip factories in places like Ohio, in uh, Texas, and in Arizona. And guess what? They did it without any prompting from the federal government, without any subsidies or any of these things that this, this industrial policy was designed to achieve. In other words, the market and entrepreneurs, private entrepreneurs, responded to this particular challenge much faster, more efficiently, uh, and in a much more creative way than the federal government, which didn't get around to sort of legislating about these sorts of things until uh 2021, 2022, and when it did so, it did so in a very clumsy, inefficient, and um, creativity-sapping way, which is the way that all industrial policy operates. So the great, there's always this great temptation to lurch towards industrial policy in response to what may or may not be genuine geopolitical challenges. The problem is, is that th 
the very nature of industrial policy is such that it cannot help but have these massive inefficiencies, and they are usually several years behind the private sector in reacting to these types of challenges. So, I mean, I'm always open to be persuaded that maybe there's an industrial policy that could be justified on national security grounds, maybe, maybe. But if you look at the track record of these policies, the results they deliver are simply subpar, and the political uh, dysfunctionalities that they encourage I think are very difficult to purge from the system once they're set up in the first place. America has always shown this remarkable ability to reinvent itself. I remember when I was growing up, you know, the uh, fashionable magazines always had articles about, you know, America's inevitable economic decline. And there was talk about how the Rust Belt was, you know, growing and um, America was going to be eclipsed. And then, of course, a whole new wave of American creativity and innovation came along in the 1980s and the 1990s and the noughties, creating industries and areas of economic activity that didn't even exist before then. Uh, what does America need to do in policy terms to allow this reinvention, this, um, this, this new American economy uh, to emerge? So I think there's there's two two dimensions of an answer to that question. So before the policy question, there's the more basic, what you might call philosophical question. Do you prioritize liberty or what people like Adam Smith called natural liberty over equality of outcome? So that's the basic question you have to answer first, because all the policy, all the policy um initiatives that that follow are in some way going to reflect what you think is more important economic liberty natural liberty freedom as a value as a good or and all the institutional things that go along with that like rule of law private property rights limited government etc and then the the alternative which is as type of striving an endless striving for an impossible outcome that we call endless um endless uh, uh, equality in outcomes. Once you make that choice, I think the policy consequences are pretty clear. So if you look at something like entrepreneurship, if you take the liberty priority seriously, then you ask yourself, what incentivizes entrepreneurship? What are the type of political arrangements that help to facilitate it? What are the things that we need to do to get government and other institutions out of the way of entrepreneurs being able to do what they do. So if you, if you take the view that limited government is part of the solution, then you look at things like entrepreneurship, you look at things like competition, you say, which in what ways does expansive government or big government inhibit and undermine the natural processes by which these mechanisms produce growth? So whether it's things like deregulation, whether it's things like lowering taxes, uh, whether it's things like reducing as much as you can the scope of industrial policy in the economy, whether it's in terms of decentralizing government as much as possible so that you don't have this problem of over-centralization, which I think is a real problem now in America, whereby everyone's running to the federal government to solve their problems. Those types of measures um, which can be uh, sort of grand in nature as well as micro in nature. If you have that mindset going forward, then you can open up all sorts of spheres for entrepreneurship and competition 
to occur. And that's how you get more and more growth. So the great advantage America has, of course, is that it can look back at its own political tradition and say, look, the political tradition of the United States is clearly one of liberty. It's clearly one of limited government. The, the founders didn't didn't start a revolution in order to build a welfare state. They didn't uh, they didn't um, take such enormous risks with their their property and their lives uh, in order to produce a European social democratic state. It's very clear that they had a vision of liberty. And that is what has to be re-embraced by Americans if they want the right policy conclusions to flow from that. So it's a two-pronged process. We need the political economy answer. And then from that, we get, I think, the guideposts, or if you like, the guardrails that keep us on the liberty policy path. And as you know, most of these things are known to us, whether it's deregulation, whether it's enhancing competition, uh, whether it's in terms of things like trade liberalization, the policy conclusions are not hard to identify. The bigger issue is whether Americans want to be a free, live in a free society, or whether they want to become yet another um, continental European democratic state engaged in managed decline. Of course, there's, you mentioned trade. There's one fairly straightforward mm -hmm. thing that American leaders could do to add 100 million consumers to the US economy pretty much overnight. A comprehensive free trade agreement with the UK and Australia. That would, yes. <laughs> that would, that would massively add the pool of people buying American products. And it, it, incidentally, given the cost of living crisis in the UK, if uh, people in the UK could pay the low prices that I pay living in the US, it would it would it would massively help them cope with their cost of living crisis too. Um, Absolutely, you, you seem to be suggesting that actually far more important than some of the policy prescriptions is this internal sense within Americans of what it is their country is, of what the role of the individual mm -hmm. is. Um, do you think there's a, a risk that the United States is losing the the, the ideals that make America exceptional? Yes. Now, this is not a new challenge. I think it's a challenge that emerges with some intellectual force at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century with the rise of the progressive movement. Uh, people like Woodrow Wilson, for example, uh, but also some Republicans like Teddy Roosevelt, who who looked at things like, so Roose, uh, Wilson looked at things like the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution and said, well, these are time-dated documents. They're not that significant for today. We need a whole different vision of what America is all about. And that vision turned out to be something like a top-down, very strong um, executive with a very big and powerful administrative state. So that challenge has been around for over 100 years now. We're still fighting those fights in many respects. And it's no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that some sections of American society have lost faith in those ideals. And they, worse, some of them wrap those ideals up with charges of, you know, systematic racism uh, and all the different things that go along with the woke agenda. And it's no mistake that outfits like the 1619 Project are trying to wrap the whole American capitalist experiment with a type of overlay of slavery, right? This, it's no coincidence that they're 
doing this because they understand, the left, I think, very much understand that if you want to change the United States in the direction that they think it should go, then you have to discredit the founding. You have that, to discredit the US Constitution. Yeah, absolutely. Because think about it this way. If, if you really believe that the American founding, uh, which was, of course, something developed by imperfect people, uh, some of whom owned slaves, if you take the view that that makes this founding fundamentally flawed, then how can you have confidence in it? Why would you believe in these things anymore? So there are some segments of American society um, that certainly take this view. If you go to a lot of American universities, the view that you get of American history is one of sort of continuous oppression of different groups year after year, decade after decade. You don't hear very much about... I love the American idea of Harvard undergraduates. Stories. I love the idea of Harvard undergraduates regarding themselves as victims. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, exactly. But that type of mentality is very much propagated through significant and influential cultural institutions in the United States today. Now, the good news, I think, is that I don't think, and certainly polling that I've seen on this type of subject, suggests that most Americans still do believe in the ideals of the American founding, the ideals of America as a commercial republic. Now, their policy choices and the way they vote may not exactly line up with that. People are not particularly consistent in many respects when it comes to these things. But the consistent answer you get um, is that most Americans still maintain faith in America's capacity to be a shining light, a beacon of liberty, to embody this experiment in ordered liberty. But cultural elites are very powerful. Um, they're very powerful. They can exert con continuous influence over people over long periods of time. So now if that side eventually triumphs, and I'm not sure that's going to be the case, by the way, but if that side were to eventually triumph, then the founding principles and ideals that have inspired not just Americans today, but so many people to come to America to live out the American dream, if those ideals go away, then that vital life force, I think, that has given America its distinct political character and made its economy so dynamic, if that goes away, recovering those is very hard. And by the way, I happen to think that Im immigrants to the United States in many senses, have a much higher appreciation of these things than a lot of That's right? I mean, because many people coming to America, they're not coming because they want to live in a European social democratic state. They're coming because they want opportunity. They want um, the type of liberty that they're denied in countries like Venezuela, for example. So if you look at migrants to the United States, they start businesses at a much faster rate. Um, they express ex feelings of patriotism much more readily than a lot of native-born Americans. And I think that's part of the, the good equation of, of immigration, right? I think it brings people who want to share and, and live out the American dream in a way that some native-born Americans, I think, have lost sight of. So as long as America remains a magnet from, from immigration, I think that that's, that's part of the way in which we maintain the sense of what America is actually meant to be. As an immigrant to America, I'm constantly baffled at how 
the woke tail is allowed to wag the American dog. And I only assume it's because the majority of Americans are just not properly aware of just quite how exceptional and remarkable and extraordinary and wonderful their country is. If if they had any realization of just how special America is, they, they wouldn't put up with people indoctrinating their kids at universities to hate their own country. They wouldn't put up with all this nonsense from people who, you know, refuse to sing the uh, 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 national anthem. If, if they truly appreciated quite how extraordinary this country is, they just simply wouldn't put up with that nonsense. And they would see it for the nonsense that it is. Right. And immigrants, I think, understand yeah. some of these things. Yeah a lot better. And I think you're right. I think a lot of other Americans are just unaware of what's being taught in many leading cultural institutions today. And when they do discover it, as they discovered in many cases, um, what their children were being taught in high school during COVID, <laughs> the reaction was quite remarkable, right? Because lots of people suddenly decided, well, I'm taking my children out of government schools yeah. and I'm going to send them to private schools because uh, one, they're open, Two, I've got some confidence that there isn't this sort of lefty ideological line being yeah. pushed on them yeah. in these schools. So, um, so to that extent, I think when Americans become aware of this, it's it's fascinating to see that their reaction is usually pretty negative about what they when they're told what yeah. their children are really being taught. Sam, it has been a great joy and a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Um, how how's the book going? Um, You've been doing lots of coverage on it? Uh, well, most of the book's been out since October last year. And I have to say, uh, the coverage, the reviews, podcasts like this one, um, invitations to speak, it's been an avalanche. And that's good. Um, that's good because I think it indicates that a lot of people are aware that we have some significant economic choices in front of us. And that there are there is there is very clearly two paths that can be followed, but also I think that while it's easy to it's easy to look around America and see the negative, uh, one of the things I try to do in my book, the second half, is to say no, there is a positive path forward, but it does depend upon us believing in what the United States is meant to be and being willing to promote that in an unapologetic manner. And the book does that, and I think. There's a lot of Americans who are responding to it precisely because of those reasons. So I'm, I'm very happy with that. Yeah. I think so. Yes. I mean, I'm still when you when you when you're being asked to talk about these a book that came out almost a year ago. Um, that's unusual. <laughs> that's very unusual. Okay. And what's fascinating is that um, this is something that I've encountered all around the country everywhere around the country people want to talk about this and maybe it's because it's frustration with the miserable political choices that we're apparently facing i think that's part of it but also i think people um do still hold at some level to this basic confidence in american principles and ideals and that any book that's willing to sort of talk about that and to explain why these are necessary if we want necessary if we want to have a growing and flourishing economy, then I think that tells us that there's an appetite for these things and these ideas. Sam, thank you so much. Keep on writing great things and giving great talks. Um, America needs it and it's much appreciated. Thanks, Douglas. Great to be thank with you. you and great, great work that you're doing with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Thank you.